Chapter twenty four of Pushing to the Front by Arisen Sweat Marden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Luke Sartor. Chapter twenty four Nerve Grip Pluck. Never give up, for the wisest is boldest, knowing that providence mingles the cup. End of old maxims, the best, as the oldest, is the stern watchword of never give up. Be firm. One constant element of luck is genuine, solid, old Teutonic pluck. Stick to your aim, the mongrel's hold will slip, but only crowbars lose the bulldog's grip. Small though he looks, the jaw that never yields drags down the bellowing monarch of the fields. Holmes Soldiers, you are Frenchmen, said Napoleon, coolly walking among his disaffected generals when they threatened his life in the Egyptian campaign. You are too many to assassinate, and too few to intimidate me. How brave he is, exclaimed the ringleader, as he withdrew completely cowed. General Taylor never surrenders, said old Rough and Ready at Buena Vista, when Santa Anna, with twenty thousand men, offered him a chance to save his four thousand soldiers by capitulation. The battle was long and desperate, but at length the Mexicans were glad to avoid further defeat by flight. When Lincoln was asked how Grant impressed him as a general, he replied, The greatest thing about him is cool persistency of purpose. He has the grip of a bulldog. When he once gets his teeth in, nothing can shake him off. It was on to Richmond, and I propose to fight it out on this line if it takes all summer that settled the fate of the rebellion. "'My sword is too short,' said a Spartan youth to his father. "'Add a step to it, then,' was the only reply. "'It is said that the snapping turtle will not release his grip even after his head is cut off. "'He is resolved, if he dies, to die hard. "'It is just such grit that enables men to succeed. "'For what is called luck is generally the prerogative of valiant souls. It is the final effort that brings victory. It is the last pull of the oar, with clenched teeth and knit muscles, that shows what Oxford boatmen call the beefiness of the fellow. After Grant's defeat at the first battle of Shiloh, nearly every newspaper of both parties in the North, almost every member of Congress and public sentiment everywhere demanded his removal friends of the president pleaded with him to give the command to someone else for his own sake as well as for the good of the country lincoln listened for hours one night speaking only at rare intervals to tell a pithy story until the clock struck one then after a long silence he said I can't spare this man. He fights. 
it was lincoln's marvelous insight and sagacity that saved grant from the storm of popular passion and gave us the greatest hero of the civil war it is this keeping right on that wins in the battle of life grant never looked backward once after several days of hard fighting without definite result he called a council of war one general described the route by which he would retreat another thought it better to retire by a different road and a general after general told how he would withdraw or fall back or seek a more favorable position in the rear at length all eyes were turned upon grant who had been a silent listener for hours he rose took a bundle of papers from an inside pocket handed one to each general and said gentlemen at dawn you will execute those orders every paper gave definite directions for an advance and with the morning sun the army moved forward to victory Messenia's army of eighteen thousand men in genoa had been reduced by fighting and famine to eight thousand they had killed and captured more than fifteen thousand austrians but their provisions were completely exhausted starvation stared them in the face the enemy outnumbered them four to one and they seemed at the mercy of their opponents general ott demanded a discretionary surrender but Massena replied my soldiers must be allowed to march out with colors flying and arms and baggage not as prisoners of war but free to fight when and where we please if you do not grant this i will sally forth from genoa sword in hand with eight thousand famished men i will attack your camp and i will fight till i cut my way through it ott knew the temper of the great soldier and agreed to accept the terms if he would surrender himself or if he would depart by sea so as not to be quickly joined by reinforcements Massena's only reply was take my terms or i will cut my way through your army ott at last agreed when Massena said i give you notice that ere fifteen days are past i shall be once more in genoa and he kept his word napoleon said of this man who was orphaned in infancy and cast upon the world to make his own way in life when defeated Massena was always ready to fight a battle over again as though he had been the conqueror the battle is completely lost said Desay, looking at his watch when consulted by napoleon at marengo but it is only two o'clock and we shall have time to gain another he then made his famous cavalry charge and won the field although a few minutes before the french soldiers all along the line were momentarily expecting an order to retreat well said barnum to a friend in eighteen forty one i am going to buy the american museum buy it exclaimed the astonished friend who knew that the showman had not a dollar 
"'What do you intend buying it with?' "'Brass,' was the prompt reply. "'For silver and gold have I none.' Everyone interested in public entertainments in New York knew Barnum, and knew the condition of his pocket. But Francis Olmsteed, who owned the museum building, consulted numerous references, all telling of a good showman who would do as he agreed, and accepted a proposition to give security for the purchaser. Mr. Olmsted was to appoint a money-taker at the door, and credit Barnum towards the purchase with all above expenses, and an allowance of fifty dollars per month to support his wife and three children. Mrs. Barnum assented to the arrangement, and offered to cut down the household expenses to a little more than a dollar a day. Six months later, Mr. Olmsted entered the ticket office at noon, and found Barnum eating for dinner a few slices of bread and some corned beef. "'Is this the way you eat your dinner?' he asked. "'I have not eaten a warm dinner since I bought the museum, except on the Sabbath, and I intend never to eat another until I get out of debt.' "'Ah, you are safe, and will pay for the museum before the year is out,' said Mr. Olmsted slapping the young man approvingly on the shoulder. He was right, for in less than a year Barnum had paid every cent out of the profits of the establishment. "'Hard pounding, gentlemen,' said Wellington at Waterloo to his officers. "'But we will see who can pound the longest.' "'It is very kind of them to sand our letters for us,' said young Junot coolly, as an Austrian shell scattered earth over the dispatch he was writing at the dictation of his commander-in-chief. The remark attracted Napoleon's attention, and led to the promotion of the scrivener. "'There is room enough up higher,' said Webster, to a young man hesitating to study law because the profession was so crowded. "'This is true in every department of activity.' The young man who succeeds must hold his ground and push hard. Whoever attempts to pass through the door to success will find it labelled push. There is another big word in the English language. The perfection of grit is the power of saying no, with emphasis that cannot be mistaken. Learn to meet hard times with a harder will and more determined pluck. The nature which is all pine and straw is of no use in times of trial. We must have some oak and iron in us. The goddess of fame or of fortune has been won by many a poor boy who had no friends, no backing, or anything but pure grit and invincible purpose. A good character, good habits, and iron industry are impregnable to the assault of the ill luck that fools are dreaming of. There is no luck, for all practical purposes, to him who is not striving, and whose senses are not all eagerly attent. What are called accidental discoveries are almost invariably made by those who are looking for something. 
a man incurs about as much risk of being struck by lightning as by accidental luck. There is perhaps an element of luck in the amount of success which crowns the efforts of different men. But even here it will usually be found that the sagacity with which the efforts are directed and the energy with which they are prosecuted measure pretty accurately the luck contained in the results achieved. Apparent exceptions will be found to relate almost wholly to single undertakings, while in the long run the rule will hold good. Two pearl divers, equally expert, dive together and work with equal energy. One brings up a pearl, while the other returns empty-handed. But let both persevere, and at the end of five, ten, or twenty years, it will be found that they succeeded almost in exact proportion to their skill and industry. Varied experience of men has led me, the longer I live, says Huxley, to set less value on meek cleverness, to attach more and more importance to industry and physical endurance. Indeed, I am much disposed to think that endurance is the most valuable quality of all, for industry, as the desire to work hard, does not come to much if a feeble frame is unable to respond to the desire. No life is wasted unless it ends in sloth, dishonesty, or cowardice. No success is worthy of the name unless it is won by honest industry and brave breasting of the waves of fortune. Has luck ever made a fool speak words of wisdom? An ignoramus utter lectures on science? A dolt write an odyssey, an aenid, a paradise lost, or a hamlet? A loafer become a Gerard or Astor, a Rothschild, Stuart, Vanderbilt, Field, Gould, or Rockefeller? A coward win at Yorktown, Wagram, Waterloo, or Richmond? A careless stone-cutter, carve an Apollo, a Minerva, a Venus de Medici, or a Greek slave? Does luck raise rich crops on the land of the sluggard, weeds and brambles on that of the industrious farmer? Does luck make the drunkard sleek and attractive, and his home cheerful, while the temperate man looks haggard and suffers want and misery? Does luck starve honest labor and pamper idleness? Does luck put common sense at a discount, folly at a premium? Does it cast intelligence into the gutter and raise ignorance to the skies? Does it imprison virtue and lord vice? Did luck give what his engine, Franklin his captive lightning, Whitney his cotton gin, Fulton his steamboat, Morse his telegraph, Blancard his lathe, Howe his sewing machine, Goodyear his rubber, Bell his telephone, Edison his phonograph. If you are told of the man who, worn out by a painful disorder, 
tried to commit suicide, but only opened an internal tumor, affecting a cure. Of the Persian condemned to lose his tongue, on whom a bungling operation merely removed an impediment of speech, of a painter who produced an effect long desired by throwing his brush at a picture in rage and despair, of a musician who, after repeated failures in trying to imitate a storm at sea, obtained the result desired by angrily running his hands together from the extremities of the keyboard. Bear in mind that even this, luck, came to men as the result of action, not inaction. Luck is ever waiting for something to turn up, says Cobden. Labor with keen eyes and strong will will turn up something. Luck lies in bed and wishes the postman would bring him the news of a legacy. Labor turns out at six o'clock and with busy pen or ringing hammer lays the foundation of a competence. Luck whines, labor whistles. Luck relies on chance. Labor on character. Stick to the thing and carry it through. Believe you were made for the place you fill, and that no one else can fill it as well. Put forth your whole energies. Be awake. Electrify yourself. Go forth to the task. Only once learn to carry a thing through in all its completeness and proportion, and you will become a hero. You will think better of yourself. Others will think better of you. The world in its very heart admires the stern, determined doer. I like the man who faces what he must, with step triumphant and a heart of cheer, who fights the daily battle without fear, sees his hopes fail, yet keeps unfaltering trust, that God is God, that somehow, true and just, his plans work out for mortals, not a tear, is shed when fortune, which the world holds dear, falls from his grasp, better with love a crust, than living in dishonor, envies not, nor loses faith in man, but does his best, nor even murmurs at his humbler lot, but with a smile and words of hope gives jest, to every toiler he alone is great, who by a life heroic conquers fate. End of chapter 24 Nerve, Grit, Pluck Recording by Luke Sartor, Brisbane, Queensland